So as we're going to look at the doctrine of the Bible, in, in essence, that's what the doctrine of Revelation is, we're going to need some Bibles. So if you're here and you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Keep your hand raised high. Um, if you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. Um, if you do own a Bible and you forgot it, just go ahead and take a Bible. Um, just put it back when you're done. Um, also, if you guys are in need of a good Bible, we have a lost and found here. And there's like 60 Bibles in there. So one, if you've lost a Bible and you haven't picked it up, it's there. And if you want a nice one, just go ahead and take it. That's what we do as Christians. We share our possessions. Um, in fact, to be honest with you, this is not my Bible. Um, this is Maria's Bible. Her mom and her dad gave it to her Christmas 2010, and they prayed that the precious Lord would fill her richly with himself. And I lost my Bible, and I can't find it. Thanks, Maria. Um, so we'll be coming out of this today. And so uh, let's start with the bi- where the Bible begins. So once you guys turn to Genesis chapter 1, it's in the very beginning of your Bible, uh, Chapter one is where we'll begin there just briefly. I'm just kind of giving you a heads up. We, we are continuing our series on doctrine. Um, it's a 13-week series that's loosely affiliated with the book Doctrine that's, that's written by Mark Driscoll and Gary Brashears. Um, it's a phenomenal book. I'm sure Ryan already told you guys you can purchase that book for you. Um, two reasons why we want you guys to purchase those books. One, it's a great resource to have and to learn. And then two is we're not going to spend time during the sermons talking about the proofs of the particular teaching or doctrine that we're going over for the week. We're going to talk about briefly the proofs and the text and then the implications or the applications or the so what. Like what does it mean for us? And so last week we looked at the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this evening we're going to look at the doctrine of Revelation, the Bible. And so if any of the proofs or the text that you want, you could just get the book. It would be a phenomenal resource. And so as we continue in this, we have a God who reveals himself to us. And so we'll start where the Bible starts in Genesis chapter 1, um, verse 3. Just three words here. And God said. And after that, God talks about creation. We start there because what we see in Revelation is that we have a God who speaks. We have a God who communicates to us. This is phenomenal because our God, in spite of sin, initiates relationship with humanity by revealing himself in such ways that we can understand him. This is what the theologians call the doctrine of revelation, of God opening himself up, revealing himself that we may be in relationship with this holy, perfect, loving, sovereign God. That's revelation. Now, revelation can be broken down in two categories. One is general revelation, and the next is special revelation. General revelation is that God reveals and shows himself. He makes himself known to everyone, everywhere, at every single time in history, primarily through creation, common grace, and our conscience. So so through creation, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, Um, The angels are singing, and they said, the Lord of hosts say, they said, holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with his glory. And what they're saying, that word glory is weight, meaning everything that is created is filled with the weight of who God is. It's not saying that God is in everything he created, but as a creator, something of creation speaks to the nature of who God is. And I think the Apostle Paul does this clearly as well. And if you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, just flip them in the middle and hold over to Romans chapter 1. 
When Paul is talking in Romans 1, he's talking about general revelation. He's talking about how God has revealed himself to people and and here, even if they're not believers in Jesus Christ, that God is making himself known. And uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 19, this is what he says. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. What the Apostle Paul is saying you can understand the things of who God is, the nature of who God is, by looking at creation. When you stand at the Niagara Falls, there's something about the rushing waters that makes you say, who created this? When you stand at the Grand Canyon and how big it is, you don't think about yourself. You think of, how did this get here? Who created this? And I think one of the best things that we can see that there's got to be a creator, there's got to be a God, is you and me. It's humanity. Um, every so often, the Body work show comes to the museum down in Phoenix, and it, it's a great phenomenal show if you're okay with looking at dead bodies. <laughs> and so you got to get over that for a second, but they have these bodies, and they show them in, in different action figures and whatnot, like this. And so they, they, they show you, on one of them, it had a man who was hopping over a hurdle, and it talked about the many things that have to happen just for a human being to hop over a hurdle. And then they had a verse there, and it says, he's fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's, that, that's so true. The, intri- the intricacies of the body lets us know there, there's got to be a creator. And so, so what general revelation is, is saying that God is saying he, he reveals himself to us, not namely, not in a saving way, but in a way that we can tell, even in our culture. What's really popular is there's a higher being. And even in science, there's someone that has an intellect behind all of this design. So God reveals himself through creation. He also reveals himself through common grace. And simply what common grace is, is that God shows his love uh, towards everybody, but not in saving ways. Um, He reigns on the just and the unjust, the last breath that we took, the fact that we have family members, people we love, and people who love us. We experience the sun on our face more in Arizona than most places, but it's a a gift from God. And then lastly, our conscience. Um, Every single person, whether they believe in Jesus or not, has a conscience that we know to some degree right from wrong. When we go into these indigenous places and these remote countries, we find that these people still have a law within themselves that says you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't kill, and so forth. It's because we are created in the image of God, and he's given us that conscience. And so general revelation is that God has revealed himself to all. Now, positively speaking, that means that God has made himself known to everyone, however, not in saving ways. All these things, general revelations, were meant to lead men and women and children to repentance and faith, to see the goodness and the kindness of our Lord. Um, This this, this happens in countries where, um, in Muslim countries, and if you talk to missionaries who who have shared the gospel year after year after year with Muslims, what they'll say often is, many Muslims come to know the Lord at first through a vision or a dream. And oftentimes it's a man in white or just gleaming, and then they need to find Jesus, they need to know something about God, and it's not until they meet someone who knows the gospel that God reveals himself in a special way, hence special revelation in which God reveals himself that we may know that God became man and he died for the sins of every single person who would believe in him. That's special revelation. 
The Bible teaches us that we have a God who is real, who is personal, who is relational, and the only way that we come to know this God is by him graciously revealing himself to us in ways in which we can understand. And we believe that the Bible teaches that the primary way that God speaks is through his inspired, inerrant, perfect, authoritative word, which is the Bible. The primary way. It's the most trustworthy way, and it's the objective way, and it's our highest court of of counsel that we line under, and that is the Bible that you have in front of you. Now, a little bit about this Bible that you have. Scripture basically means sacred writing, and holy Bible means sanctified. Holy means sanctified or set apart, and Bible just means book. So this is a holy book. There's 66 books in this Bible. If you turn to your table of continents, you'll see that. Uh, 39 of those books are in the Old Testament. 27 of those books are in the New Testament. There's over 40 authors ranging from different age and various times. It's written over 1,500 year span, three different continents, so it's multicultural. And, and what you also see is that there's, there's, there's pages in here, or chapters. Those chapters are not inerrant. They're not perfect. They're not uh, some system that got put in. Those were put in about 1,200, and not unlike our addresses on our homes, to let us to know how to go to specific places. But you have the Bible, and this is God's Word. Now, the question that comes from there is, who wrote the Bible? I think it's a very, very good question. Who wrote the Bible, God or man? Here's the answer. Yes. There you go. Um, Who wrote the Bible, God or man? Yes, meaning the Bible, unlike any other book, is written both by God and by man. Now, it doesn't mean that the Bible's co-authored, like like the book Doctrine, where you have Gary Brashears and Mark Mark Driscoll getting together. It's not like God and man got together and God was like, whoa, I don't know about that. You you take that side. You're, You're better at that. You talk about sin. I'll talk about love and all this other stuff, and we'll come together. So it's not a collaboration of God and man. It's not God whispering into the ear of man like, Genesis right? There's, there's, there's none of that going on. What, what it is, is that it was people who were prepared providentially by God, motivated and superintended by the Holy Spirit to write in such a way out of their own unique personalities and unique circumstances in such a way that their words and their writings are the very words of God. Say it again. People who were providentially prepared by God motivated and superintended by the Holy Spirit that wrote in such a way that their own personalities and circumstances, so you have different personalities, you have some people who are rich, some people are poor, some people are kings, some people are peasants, some people are doctors, and they wrote in different times, but carried along by the Holy Spirit that their writings and words are the very words of God. So though man and God wrote the Bible, it's God's word. It's not man's word. If you take your Bible and turn to the right from Romans to 2 Timothy chapter 3. You see the Apostle Paul speaking of this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. He says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. So all Scripture is God-breathed, like this is God's Word. And yet, man, these people who were, who were providentially chosen by God were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Where you are now, to see this process, turn to your right to 2 Peter chapter 1. And we'll see this process of which men and God wrote scripture. Uh, beginning in verse 20 in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, this is what Peter writes. 
knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one, someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will or the desire of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this process is called divine inspiration. God and man wrote the Bible to give us God's word. And so who wrote the Bible, God or man? Yes. And the question from there has to be, and is, can Scripture be written today? Is there any new revelation that is equal to the objective truth that we have in Scripture? And the quick answer to that is, is, uh, is no. Scripture cannot be written today. Hold your place in 2 Peter and turn all the way to the very, very end of your Bible to Revelation chapter 22. Verse 18, it's the last page of your Bible. If there's more, it shouldn't be there. Verse 18 says this, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to them the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. And so no, um, you can't take away from scripture. That means we have to teach everything in scripture. We have to align ourselves in the authority of everything in scripture. And then we cannot add to it. We cannot, there's no truth um, of writing or prophecy that is equal to scripture. Now, again, if you want to learn more about how the Bible was canonized and how we closed it, get the book or email me. We can give you more resources. We have tons of resources for that process. But to answer that question, no, God, God is not writing new scripture. However, That does not mean that God is still not speaking in in special revelation. It doesn't mean that God is is, is done communicating. As a church, we believe that the Bible teaches that, that the Holy Spirit is still at work, the Holy Spirit is still moving. The Holy Spirit still speaks. Um, you could, God reveals himself through dreams. He reveals himself through visions. He reveals himself through prophecy um, because the Bible teaches that, and that happens. However, those things are subjective. They're subjective. They're subjective to Scripture. If you go back to that Second Peter text, same, same, same chapter, just before that, Second Peter chapter 1, Um, This is what Peter says. In in the context of here, Peter is talking about how they were there with God when Jesus was being baptized, and they heard the voice of God speaking. And then he alludes to the Mount Transfiguration when Jesus became transfigured in glory, and Isaiah came, and Elijah came, and Moses came. And he's saying, we've seen some pretty incredible stuff. And he says this in verse 17, the second half. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This was God speaking. And Peter says in verse 18, We ourselves, we heard the voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word of God, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and and the morning star rises in your hearts. What he's saying is this, these things are awesome, but we have something more sure, and that's the word of God. Um, sometimes you look at the Bible and we have a low view of scripture that all we want is experience. And so we would love for someone to come and give us a vision or give us a dream or prophesy in our life. And those things are amazing and God does do those things. However, what Peter says clearly here is we saw God, we saw Jesus, we heard the audible voice of God. And yet this is more sure. This is more sure. Again, 
as a church. We believe that God continues to speak. My experience for me is that the way I became a believer in Jesus and God got a hold of my heart, I was sitting in, a, in an apartment my senior year in college and uh, not thinking anything about God and not really knowing if God was thinking anything about me. I get a phone call that started off pretty weird. This lady said, you don't know me, um, but I believe that God has a word for me to you. And I said, yeah, this, yeah, this is going to get weird, right? And and she said, I'm in a prayer group with your mom. And then this woman proceeded to tell me everything about myself and things about me that, that only I knew. Dreams that I was having, having these terrible dreams. And she was telling me about the dreams and interpreting these dreams and telling me how God was using these things to get a hold of me and, and, and how God wanted to love me and forgive me and all these different things. And I mean, just deeper and deeper and deeper. I'm looking out of the blinds, like, I mean, because I'm, I'm freaking out, right? You know, I'm watching Sports Center, all of a sudden this lady calls me. This is, this is really weird. And then, and then she goes on to say, and by the way, don't be surprised if, if you go into, if you desire, have a desire to go into full-time vocational ministry and become a pastor. I said, okay, now you've gone too far, right? I am going to go play football, make a lot of money, and give to the church. How about that? You know, like that, that's my plan. And, and yet, um, here I am, right? Um, that, that's how she spoke to me. Well, when I say that it's subjective, meaning it's not equal to scripture, this same lady said, I think God is saying that you're also going to play for the Eagles. That didn't happen, unfortunately. <laughs> it, would, it would have been great to say I did both, but I didn't. No, godly lady, and she, you know, I think she said most of the part was right, and I think maybe, you know, she probably had something bad to eat at one point because... I didn't get a chance to play for the Eagles, but that's all right. I'm here. So God speaks through those things, and he speaks through those ways. However, they're not equal with Scripture. And so what do we do with visions? What do we do with dreams? How are we supposed to do that? The Bible is very clear. One, we shouldn't be overly gullible and just receive everything at all because it says not to despise, but it says not to despise prophecy, but to test everything and to hold fast to what is good. And so here's a few ways. One, when you have people that are saying these things, dreams, visions, prophecy, first, the Bible says, are they loyal to the Lord? Find out, do they love Jesus? Are these people really Christian? Um, Is their word consistent with the Bible? So this lady said, hey, God wants to save you. God wants to redeem you. Well, that's what God is in the business of doing. That's the broader truth. This is just more specific for my life. Is, Is there... Is what they say describe or predict accurate? Does it come to pass? Is their character Christ-like? Does their word build up and encourage the church in truth? And do the church elders affirm their word? Um, It's important that you come to the leaders and the pastors of your church, not because we are any any better than you. We're sinners just like you. But God and his goodness has has placed us to lead the church and to understand, to discern, and to to see if there's any false doctrine or false teaching there, Um, if it's something that doesn't line up to the truth of Scripture. And after that, just proceed in whatever it is. See see if it comes to pass. And what you know for sure, as the Bible says, as Peter says, is the word is the sure word. We always come back to the word and say, what does the Bible say? It is the authoritative truth of scripture. And there we have the doctrine of revelation. Now, so what? So we know all that. We get 66 book or 40 authors, we get it, we get it. Special revelation, general revelation, we get it. So what, what does this mean for our life every single day. Like, what does this mean for us as we go to work every day, as we raise children, as we're singles, as we go to college? What does this mean? Like, what's the so what, or who cares? But four things that that I'm going to have that we do, excuse me, three things that we're going to do, and one thing that we have to see. First, because the Bible is the authoritative word of God, we have to read it as a story. We have to see that it's a story, 
And what I mean by that is that the Bible gives us to us uh, the ultimate reality of history. It's not just principles. It's not just good teachings, but it's truth. And so often you hear people say, well, it's Christian truth. It's not just Christian truth. It's truth. It's ultimate reality. And the best way we understand it is if we read it as a story. And, and, and I get there's some objections. Well, the Bible's not written as a novel. It's not written as a story. Um, there's, there's, there's wisdom literature. Um, there's poems. There's epistles and letters. But when you take the Bible together, those 66 books, it does tell of a story. And it has a plot in the story. It says this world is broken because it's lost its king. We've rebelled against our king. But our king is coming back and has come back to renew and redeem and restore all of earth in and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And when we see that the Bible speaks to ultimate reality, we understand that we have a part by faith to play into this. And so the first thing we have to see, we have to see the Bible's a story. Michael Goldman, who writes the book Drama of Scripture, and is a worldview professor, says it this way. The biblical story encompasses all of reality, north, south, east, west, past, present, and future. It begins with the creation of all things, and it ends with the renewal of all things. And in between, it offers the interpretation of the meaning of the cosmic history. It is, therefore, makes a comprehensive claim. Our stories, our reality, must find a place in this story. The Bible answers questions that philosophy people have been asking for centuries. Who am I? Where did I come? How did I get this way? Why is this world jacked up? Why do kids get cancer? Why, does ba- why do babies die? Why are my parents divorced? Where, what's going to happen? What happens when we die? Is there life after death? The Bible speaks to all of those things. The Bible lets us know from the very beginning in creation that God created and he said it is good. And we're going to talk more about this next week. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we see why we have it the way it is. We see why there's decay. We see why there's death. We see why there's divorce. We see why there's murder. It's because mankind rebelled against God. And we chose to rebel against him. And now evil and death and decay has come into our world. And the question is, will it get better? Is there a way? Is there a way that it will get better? And the Bible speaks of redemption in Christ Jesus, of which God started this long plan of redemption by choosing a man named Abraham and says, I will bless the entire world. And you see throughout the whole Old Testament how all these stories is just add up of Joseph and David and Esther and Jonah and Job and all these people. They just couldn't add up. And finally, in the New Testament, God himself becomes man out of this lineage in order to bring hope, in order to bring redemption, in order to redeem humanity and the rest of the world. He goes to the cross, he dies, he resurrects. And Colossians says this, in Christ Jesus, God is uniting all things to himself. And there's a finish line of the story, that all who by faith believe in Jesus will be with him and with God for eternity and a restored new heavens and a new earth. That's the story. And, and, and what we would say is the Bible gives us that story and we enter into that story only by relationship and by faith in Jesus Christ. We enter in that story and we play a part in that story as characters in a relationship with Jesus Christ, which comes through the power of the word. The word of God is not something that's crusty or old. In fact, in Hebrews chapter four, it says that the Bible, the word is living and active. It's as sharp as a double-edged sword. And so the Bible speaks. And the way that we understand our place in this story is by knowing God. We started off this series, this, this series on doctrine to say, if we're saying we're gonna be people who are just not into religion, but we're into relationship with God, 
That means like any good relationship, we have to know this God. And we have to see the only way we play a part in this story is by invitation and obedience to the faith that God gives us to believe in his son, Jesus. And it comes through his word. This word is powerful. It changes lives. In fact, one of the best stories I've ever heard is a good friend of mine, Tyler, who's uh, on the redemption leadership team in Gilbert. Um, he tells a story of his dad. His dad grew up um, in, in a home where his mom was a Christian, but he wasn't a Christian. Here he is now, a grown man with his own kids and not a Christian, but he had this old Bible. And they watched a lot of sports. He himself is a, is a coach. And every time they'd watch football games, you know, they always have somebody holding up a sign with the verse on it. What verse is it usually? Yeah, John 3.16. It's like, oh, damn, what is that verse? Um, John, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have faith in him, eternal life. And he says every time he would watch a game and the sign would go up, his dad would run and get his Bible, open up his Bible, trying to turn to John 3.16, even though he knew it, and he'd read it, and he'd put it down. Back and forth, back and forth. And he says one time he's watching a Bronco game, which is stupid, um, so, but... <laughs> One time he's watching a Bronco game and he says, and this guy is dressed in a clown suit and he lifts up the sign and it says Romans 10, 9 and 10. And so his dad was like, Romans 10, 9 and 10. So he runs back and he gets his Bible and he brings his Bible out and he looks to Romans 10, 9 and 10. Here's what it says. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And Tyler says his dad got on his knees and said, I need to confess because I do believe that Jesus is Lord, and I do believe that God raised him from the dead. And he became a Christian. And then Tyler became a Christian, and his mom became a Christian, and his sister became a Christian, and their family's Christian now. Um, this is the power of the word. It has nothing to do with the messenger. It has everything to do with the power of of the word. I mean, if God can speak through a clown, right? <laughs> like literally a clown has nothing to do with me or Justin. We're basically clowns anyway, right? Has everything to do with God's word. It's powerful. And, and, and some of you, when you heard that verse, you thought in your own life, I remember praying that same prayer. I, I remember reading that same verse and, and, and asking Jesus to come into my heart. I, I, I remember that. I remember that. That, that, that was the invitation that God had for you and has for all who would believe to enter into this grand meta-narrative of which you play a part of. It's how you begin relationship with the Lord. It's by faith. But th that's just not the start of a relationship. It's not only the start of a relationship, but it's how you continue in relationship as well. Because you continue in a relationship and you get to know God in deeper ways, like any other relationship. And when you get to know God in ways, you read his Bible, you get to understand what he's saying to you, you begin to know how to act and how to move and how God has for you to live as a parent and as a, as a child or as a student or as an employee. You, you begin, even when God doesn't say things explicitly, but the longer you're in relationship with him and you listen to him, like in any good relationship, you listen, the more you know what God has for you to do. It's like my wife and I. We've been married not that long, four years. I know things about her, and she knows things about me. Before we were married, we thought we knew, oh, yeah, she's great. We're going to never get in fights. I don't know what they're telling us. Like, yeah, right. She's so godly, and I'm godly, and it's going to be perfect, right? And then we got married. And, and, and now I, I get it. You know, there's things about me that she doesn't like, and there's things about her that I, I, I like everything about her, and, I, I, and that's, that's what I've been told to say, right? And, and, and yet, and yet, the more we get to know each other and the more, as soon as we got married, we knew, okay, let's just be honest, right? 
And so the first thing she did is she came to my closet and she goes, hey, there's this shirt that you wear all the time. I can't stand it. It was an awesome shirt. It had like a rhino on it and, and some like, <laughs> and like a number on the back or something like that. And so, yeah, see, you guys like it. That's awesome too. Um, and then I, and she goes, listen, you, you have a rhino on your shirt. You are a grown man <laughs> with a rhino on your shirt. And I said, no, you're right. You're right. Uh, for you, baby, I'll, 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 I'll get rid of it. Let's look at your closet. And so <laughs> I came over there and I, and I said, you see these overalls? You are a grown woman. <laughs> you do not, and, and if you're a grown woman wearing overalls, it's so cute on you, I'm sure. But, but for my wife and for me in my house, uh-uh, right? And so, but the more I get to know Holly, the more in relationship, the more, she doesn't have to say things, sometimes I just know, I just know. It's the same way when God, by faith, draws us to himself, it's by faith, in relation to him, in context of his word, that we get to know more and more how God will have for us to live, and our own unique styles and personalities, what God is saying, what God is doing, and how he would have for us to live. So, that's the most important one to do, is to read the Bible as a story. See the power of the word in which God, by faith, draws you to himself, and by faith, you grow in relationship with, the God, with God. And the next two things are simple. Um, you got to read the Bible individually. Um, I wouldn't be a good pastor if I didn't just say, read your Bibles, right? But I have to say it. There's no, like, cool way to say it. Um, they've been saying it for years. Read your Bibles. It is so important to read the word of God and to sit underneath the word of God. I mean, when we see, when we see the, the, that the Bible is a story, we, we begin to see, and remember, we're, we're story-formed people, and it begins to shape us. Here's what I mean. We have books that we love. We have music and songs that we love, and we enter into those books. For me as a kid, I, my favorite novel, probably the only novel that I read and finished, was To Kill a Mockingbird. Loved it. All the characters and my friends, Boo Radley and Atticus Finch, it was a, it was a good deal for me. And it's not just for kids. My, my grandfather... Um, he's just an old-school farmer, Mississippi dude. He doesn't speak English, um, I don't think. He just goes, right? And, um, but, but he has a TV for one reason, to watch country westerns. Um, he looks like none of the country western people. I, I don't think his life has anything to do with them, but he will sit on that couch and watch it. And guess what he dresses like? A country western dude. If you took those shows away from him, he'd die, all right? And, 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 and that's kind of how we are. We love these things that shape us. I mean, think about it. When ER went off, you guys went crazy. Oh, ER is going off. And then Franz went off the air. Oh, Franz, what are we going to do? Two shows that I never got into. But when Martin went off the air, uh, it hurt, all right? It hurt. And it's because we love these stories. We, we get into it. It's the same way with Lost. Lost just took over everybody. And, and, and then, but the thing about stories and books, we enter into those things and we come out. The Bible is something that we enter into and we never come out. God begins to change us. And it's primarily and often through our time, our devotion with God. It's when we read the scriptures over and over and over again that God begins to shape us. Now, I'm not going to be legalistic and tell you how often you should read the Bible. You should just read it often, and you should read it consistently. I'm not going to tell you when you have to read it. If you're a night guy, that's fine. I happen to be a person, if I don't read the Bible in the morning, it's not going to happen. If I read it at night, it's usually, Lord, <laughs> over, right? Some of you guys can read it at work during lunchtime. I don't know what, but just read the Bible. Um, be, 
1 Corinthians chapter 3 lets us know that the Holy Spirit that is in every single believer, um, we have interpretation. We can understand the Bible. Now, there are parts that are hard, and so you may need to have tools. The way I learned to read the Bible or understand the Bible was a uh, NIV, which is a translation. They had a study Bible, and I bought a study Bible. I'd read the verses, then I'd read what the interpretation was. I'd read the verses, and I'd read the interpretation. I think the English Standard Version, the version of which we teach from, it has its own study Bible. You can purchase that. It is, it is highly encouraged. And just read the Bible. And, and quiet time or devotion or time with Jesus, whatever you call it, don't, don't expect, like, fireworks. All right? If I just be honest with you, my, my time with the Lord out of a scale of one to 10, is usually like a two or a three. And I usually get up in the morning and I pray a prayer that goes like this. God, I really don't want to be here. There's a lot of the things that I want to do right now. My mind's not into it, but I pray a little couple of verses out of the Psalms, open my heart and let my heart and my eyes behold wonderful things. And I read through whatever it is I'm reading through my reading plan and I pray and I journal a little bit and I go about my day. But most of the time, it's a two or a three. And then every once in a while, I get a seven, eight, or nine. A 10 would be like if I was praying and Jesus showed up. That happened yet. <laughs> a seven, eight, or nine. And it's amazing. It's in those times where it really, it really, like the words on the pages jump off and they just jump into my life and they convict me. I repent of sin. They, they, they encourage me. They guide me. It really like seems like God is in the room. Now, I would never get those seven, eights, and nines if it wasn't for all those twos and threes. It's a discipline, and you have to work at it. You have to work at it. So wherever you are now, if you're reading the Bible once a week, twice a week, start there and go further and go further. Individually, it's how you will get to know the Lord. The third thing you need to do is not only read the Bible individually, because the Bible has things that are hard to understand, is that you will understand the Bible and understand how to do the Bible and fill out, learn your place in the story in the context of one another's. And it's in community. You have to do and understand the word of the Lord and how to live the word, of the, the word of the Lord with people. Whether you're reading it in the context of your family or you're reading in the context of your roommates, the way we do it is redemption communities. You get in community with people over a long period of time. Don't expect to just start reading the Bible and just know everything about the Bible. It takes a lifetime. And, and some people say, well, I already know the Bible. It says the same things over and over and over again. That's good. Because we forget things over and over and over again. Uh, my wife is always saying, you ask questions that I've already told you the answer to. And I say, sweetheart, the Bible says the same things over and over again. And if Jesus thought it was important for me to hear things over and over again, um, why don't you? Uh, <laughs> I don't say that. That was... I said it twice. Um, so, but, but yeah, the Bible does say the same things over and over again. But it's because we need to hear it. If you ever notice the Bible, it's constantly saying, remember, remember, remember. Because God knows that we don't remember. We forget. Uh, we can hear a message and walk away. You don't even know. You don't know what Justin said last week. There's probably three things you know Justin said last week. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That was it, right? We, it, it, it's just true. So that's why you have to read it over and over again in the context of one another's in community because you're asking questions and you're, you're grinding on each other and you're telling each other, what, what's this? What's that? How do I learn? And over a long period of time, you'll have deeper relationships with each other and you'll have a deeper relationship with the Lord. And so you've got to read the Bible as a story. You've got to read it individually and you have to read it as a community. And the last thing that you have to see or all of this is meaningless is you've got to see that Jesus is the hero of the story. That every context and every text and every scripture and every word, every story in the Old Testament that you come to, you have to see that Jesus is the hero. 
If you turn with me to Luke chapter 24, the text that we had read this morning, you'll see the greatest Bible study that was ever recorded in history. The context here is Jesus has just been resurrected. There's two guys walking down the road of Emmaus, and, and they're, they're, they're wondering what happened to Jesus, and Jesus shows up to them. He did, they don't know that it's Jesus, and they're telling them, oh, we thought that this Jesus was going to be the guy. We've heard that maybe the tomb was empty, but we don't know what's going on. And this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 24, uh, beginning in verse 25. He says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all that the scriptures all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. This is what he's saying. Beginning with Moses. Moses wrote the, wrote the first books of the Bible. And all the prophets. He says, everything pointed to me. Everything pointed to me. All of the religion is basically instruction that's sprinkled with stories only to illustrate the instructions. And unfortunately, we come to the Bible like that over and over again. And basically, we come to the Bible as about us and what we have to do in order for God to love us. And that's, that's religion at its heart. It's duty-based. You have to see that the Bible is not about you and what you have to do, but the Bible is about God and what he has done. Namely, the Bible is about Jesus and what he has done. The Bible is a story sprinkled with instructions only to illustrate this story. There's great instructions in the Bible. Turn the other cheek. Um, husbands, serve your wives and love your wives like Christ loved the church. Turn, um, um, honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't kill. They're great instructions. However, they're meaningless if the story's not true, if Jesus didn't live the life that we should have lived, he didn't die the death that we should have died, he wasn't resurrected and ascended to heaven and gave us the spirit, it's meaningless. You can't come to the Bible with basically principles and do's and don'ts. You have to come to the Bible and see that everything points to Jesus. Every story, every true theme points to Jesus. Here's what I mean. Tim Keller says this. And David and Goliath's story, very familiar story. Their story is usually taught this way. You go, David went to the giant. He count, with faith, he conquered the giant. So now you, with faith, can conquer the giants of your life. And he said, the kids don't really know this in Sunday school, but they should be suing their teachers for malpractice. Because the story is not about be like David. The story is about be like the one in whom David points to. Every story is placed in the context of a greater story whose name is Jesus. Like Keller puts it this way. He says, don't you know that Jesus is the true and better Adam? When Adam was in the garden, he failed the test, and he gave us his sin, and, and we gr- get dragged down with him. Jesus is the true and better Adam, who in the garden of Gethsemane, he passes the test, and he gives us his righteousness, and he lifts us up. Jesus is the true and better Abel, whose brother murdered him, whose blood cried out for condemnation. But Jesus being the true and better Abel, his blood now does not cry out for condemnation but it cries out for acquittal for his brothers and sisters. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in between God and the people. He's the true and better Abraham who leaves the comfort, the familiar, what he knows to go out into a void to create a people, a new people for himself. Jesus is the true and better Isaac. Remember Isaac whose father raised a dagger and was going to bring it down? And God says, now I know you love me because you withheld your son your only son, the one in whom you love for me. Jesus, the true and better Isaac, his father didn't only raise the dagger, but on the cross he brought it down. And so now we can look at God the Father and say, now we know you love us because you didn't withhold your son, your only son, the one in whom you love. 
You see, Jesus is the true and better Esther. Remember when Esther says, um, I will risk the palace, and if I die, I die in order to save my people. Jesus, the true and better Esther, says, I'll leave the comforts of heaven, and not if I die, but when I die, I will die in order to save my people. He's the true and better Job, the innocent, the, the true innocent sufferer who intercedes for his stupid friends. He's the true and better Joseph who stands at the right hand of the king and he intercedes for his friends and uses new power in order to save us. He's the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm in order that we may be brought in. He's the real sacrificial lamb, innocent, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us, the true king, the true prophet, the true bread, the real light. The Bible is not about you. It's about Jesus, amen? When we begin to see that the Bible is all about Jesus and what he has done, we run to him in repentance and faith. There's a motivational change. It's not about what we do. He's already accomplished it, and the whole Bible speaks of his name. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are a God who reveals yourself to us in general ways to every single person in this room. And Father, we thank you were a good God who poured out your Holy Spirit and given us godly men and godly women to learn from and has given us your word that we may see you in special ways. And that way is knowing you as our Father, knowing Jesus as our Savior, and knowing the Holy Spirit as the one who brings us comfort, illumination of your word. God, we pray that you would help us see that Jesus is, is truly the hero, not only of the Bible, but of the world. We look to so many different things, Father. We look to relationships. We look to people. We look to money. We look to education. We look to all these things that at some level they fell us, Lord. Instead of looking to Jesus, the one who, was, who suffered for us, who bled for us, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you raised him from the dead. God, that's why we live. It's why we breathe. It's why we act to glorify your name. And so, Lord, as we, as we transition into a time of communion, Lord, as we remember your son Jesus, God, we pray that you would open up our hearts in ways to see you clearly and, and to know you and to desire to get to know you deeper and deeper through your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.